Our reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174 in the Church Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good evening. It's good to see you here and to have this opportunity uh, to speak to you from Ephesians this evening. Uh, I wonder, uh, as you can see on the screen behind me, uh, I wonder what you put your hope in. Perhaps, uh, like me, you might put your hope in the England football team. Every four years, the World Cup comes around, and your hopes build, and they build, and you think maybe this might just be the World Cup that England can go all the way. The squad is looking quite good. They seem to be working together quite well. Maybe they can just do it. But, as always, the England football team disappoint. Without surprise, they, you know, if you're lucky, get through to the quarterfinals, and rather than being hopeful, they're a little bit hopeless. Perhaps you're a fan of the X Factor or Britain's Got Talent and you have a specific act or individual that you want to do really well, that you want to see get into the final and win. Perhaps you even go so far as to maybe text and uh, spend a pound on trying to get that person through to the final. I won't judge you, maybe a little bit. But so often they don't. So often we're left disappointed or perhaps thinking uh, in a more real-world scenario, uh, Barack Obama, this was one of the campaign posters in the build-up to his election, and he was a figure of hope, a figure of hope for African-Americans, hoping for more equality in America, but also a figure of hope in a time where the economy was extremely unstable. He was going to be the guy who was going to sort it out and bring equality to America. Well, tonight we're not speaking about American politics. I won't get into whether or not Obama's done a good job. But I think you don't need to watch the news for long to see that there is still a lot of unrest and unhappiness in America. And Obama hasn't met everybody's hopes. Well, today, if you could have uh, the passage, uh, Ephesians, open in front of you, that would be helpful. Uh, as we look at Ephesians, I wonder, are you feeling hopeless or hopeless? full. 
And we're carrying on our series, as Nick said, looking at the firm foundations of the Christian faith. Last week, Nick showed us from Romans how we're saved by God. This week, as we look at these 10 verses in Ephesians, we'll see what it means to be trusting in God. And we're splitting the passage into three. So first of all, we'll look at the hopelessness of man, and then in contrast to that, the hope with God, and finally, our response to what we see from those two sections. So first of all then, the hopelessness of man. Verses uh, 1 to 3, and I'll just read those out again so they're fresh in our memory. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving a wrath. What a devastating description. You might be sitting here this evening wondering what on earth the Ephesians must have done to receive such a a warning, such a letter from Paul. How messed up was the Ephesian church? Well, Paul's description of the godless human condition here in these first three verses is not solely directed at the Ephesians. Paul here is not giving us insight into a specific uh, sinful group or even the uh, wayward Ephesian church or even condemning the extremely paganistic society in which he lived. No, this is a biblical diagnosis of fallen humanity, the whole of society, everywhere, throughout history. This is made clear to us when we look at Back of verse 3, where Paul includes himself and his fellow believers, stating, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. After including himself and his fellow believers, Paul then goes on to include all of humanity. The rest were by nature deserving of wrath. The rest of humanity throughout history throughout the world, all are in this hopeless state. And we see three areas where uh, this condition is shown most clearly and that Paul highlights in these three verses. So first of all then, in verse 1, we see that we were dead. You, and Paul's established when he says you, that actually means all of us, all of humanity. So all of us were dead in our transgressions and sins. These two words, transgressions and sins, uh, that Paul chooses to use, expressly cover all of human evil. Transgression or trespass refers to stepping uh, over the boundary or deviating from the right path. Sin, however, refers to falling short of the mark, missing the mark or falling short. So in these two definitions, transgressions, an active wrongdoing, and in sins, a more passive wrongdoing, we see all of humanity's evil covered. As a result of this evil, we are cut off from God. Some of the young guys at the back might be uh, familiar with the phrase, you're dead to me. 
And you might use that uh, in an example, perhaps, if you really like a film and you're discussing it, and the person you're speaking to says, actually, you know, I really don't like Lord of the Rings. I think it's a really average film. And you might turn to them and say, you're dead to me. It's a kind of a, a, a dramatic overstatement kind of thing. But here, there's no sense of that at all. Our sin means that we are dead to God, cut off from life, which is only found in him. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. Uh, Over 700 years before the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, the prophet Isaiah wrote, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. What a hard truth. And it's hard to perceive and understand this fully. We live in a world which seems so full of life, whether that's the body of a healthy, successful athlete, or perhaps the intellect of a successful university professor, or perhaps the personality of a well-known celebrity. The world seems so alive. But Paul makes it clear what really counts in this life is not sport, academia, fame, not the body, the mind, or personality, but the soul. In this sphere, in the soul, we are dead, and that's what counts. Paul says we are dead in our sin, and as a result, we're hopeless. So we've seen in verse 1 that we are dead. Secondly, we see that we were enslaved, verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. Notice that we lived in this sin, this hopeless human condition. The uh, ESV uh, Bible describes it as the sins that we once walked in. Now, I know there are a few people here who absolutely love walking, probably a few here as well who don't as much, but I think we can all Uh, say that actually during perhaps the summer holidays on a nice August evening, walking along a Cornish cliff or through a Devonshire moor, perhaps climbing a mountain, actually a lovely walk is fantastic. It's great to be outside to see beautiful creation. You feel alive and you feel free. But there is no sense of that here at all. There is no freedom. There is no sense of life. Instead, there is a fearful bondage to forces we have absolutely no control over. We are enslaved to sin, captives to this way of life, or rather, way of death. And Paul tells us here the influences that cause and control our enslavement. So we see that we were enslaved, and Paul writes that we were living in our sin when we followed the ways of this world. And that's the first way uh, that we are enslaved. I wonder if I asked you, uh, in what ways do you follow the world? What kind of responses I might get? I imagine there'd be quite a, a wide range of responses. But I think if we were being really honest with ourselves, we would say that we were slaves to materialistic, the, the materialistic culture that we live in. Cultural slavery, our identity being completely based on what phone we have, how we dress, the music that we listen to, maybe even the way that we speak, or perhaps the the house that we long for, the car that we have to drive so we can be a someone. 
Maybe it's that attractive partner that we have to be with to be happy. Our goals, our priorities are shaped by the culture of the world. Increasingly, we live in a society chained to the trends set by social media, popular culture and advertisement slogans. John Stott, a theologian, describes the world, the phrase that Paul uses here, as society living without reference to God. So as slaves to the world, we drift along this mindless stream of contemporary living according to the world's standard, and we are enslaved to sin. But we also see uh, that in this passage we are enslaved by the devil and his work. Here, Paul describes the devil as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, air referring to the world, which we've just seen refers to humanity living against God. Now, it's extremely unpopular to speak about Satan or the devil in today's culture. And if you're perhaps speaking to a colleague or to a friend, you might just about get away with speaking about Jesus if you paint him as some semi-historical nativity figure who's all-loving. But if you start speaking about Satan or the devil, and the horn figure with a tail and a pitchfork, you can't be serious. You must be joking. That's someone from what the Middle Ages would believe in. Get real. But that's what Paul is saying to us here. We need to get real. We need to recognise the reality of Satan and his power. Look at verse 2 and how he is described. Ruler. He is a ruler and as such has power. Power over the world which sets itself up against God and the way that he called us to live. We see that he has power on the world when we read in verse 2 that he is now at work in those who are disobedient. Scripture identifies Satan as a source of temptation to sin. And later, uh, in the book of 1 Peter, we read, Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is serious. So we see here that the devil is working in the world, and as a result, we're enslaved. The third and final area that enslaves us in our sin is the flesh. Now, Paul isn't talking about the physical covering of your skeleton, the skin, and perhaps there are a few Doctor Who fans here tonight, and you might have seen that episode a few series ago where the monster alien was known as the flesh, and it's kind of transformed itself into the, uh, the Doctor and other people in that episode. Unsurprisingly, Paul isn't talking about that here either. No, Paul's uh, describing our fallen, self-centred human nature. The flesh and its cravings refer to the sinful desires of our bodies and our minds. Firstly then, looking at the desires of our bodies, it's important to make it clear that there is nothing wrong with physical desires. God made the body for food, for sleep and for sex. But when appetite becomes gluttony, when sleep becomes laziness, when sex becomes lust... It's then that our natural, good desires have been perverted into wrong, sinful desires. And looking at the desires of our minds, our thoughts, as Paul puts it, we see that pride 
arrogance, self-centered thinking are all forms of the sinful flesh. And this is really dangerous, especially in church life where it's so easy to look respectable, to look like a good person who's coming to church regularly, who's serving, who's helping out, but actually inside we're consumed by pride, by arrogance, by selfishness. We're chained to our pride, our greed, and our selfishness. Enslavement of the flesh is a truly, truly horrible thing. Now, it might be feeling like you've had enough. You're kind of in a boxing ring, and you're in the corner, you're on the ropes, and you're feeling like, enough's enough. Paul, stop here. But Paul raises his arm for one more punch. He really wants to get this message across. There's one more unpleasant truth to tell us about ourselves. And that is, we were also condemned in the second half of verse 3. Again, similar to the subject of Satan, the topic of God's wrath is not a popular one by any means. So it's really important that we understand clearly what Paul means here by God's wrath. In the second half of verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. First, we need to recognise that God's wrath is not the same as man's. I don't know about you, but if you've had perhaps a long day and not everything's gone your way, you can get home and perhaps you can just fly off the handle. It's quite a random anger. Perhaps it's an anger which isn't always completely informed. You're angry at someone even though you don't know all the facts. Perhaps it's not their fault. Perhaps sometimes we're angry out of spite, out of malice, maybe even revenge against someone. Well, God's wrath is not like this at all. No, it's none of those things. So what is it then? It is God's righteous and constant hostility towards evil. It's his unwillingness to settle with sin, to compromise over what is wrong. And praise God that that is the case. Imagine that we believed in a God who settled with second best, who settled to live with sin in an imperfect world. But the hitch is then that God is absolutely right to judge our sin and our human evil. Our human evil condition then is fully deserving of his righteous wrath. We've seen this, haven't we? That we are enslaved to sin, that we're living in it, in a world that defies God at every step. By nature, we are sinful by choice, absolutely, but we're also members of a fallen human race. John Ellison helpfully uh, introduced the 18 to 25 group last week uh, to the Common Book of Prayer. I'm not particularly familiar with it. But at the back has the uh, 39 articles of faith or religion. And the ninth one talks about original sin. And I'll just read a short quote from that. Original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusts always contrary the spirit and therefore in every person born into this world he is deserving God's wrath and condemnation so evaluate your life 
see that we are dead in our sin, that we are truly slaves to sin, and as a result, surely, we are all deserving of God's condemnation. We are all hopeless in this human condition, dead, enslaved, and condemned. What a mess. Are you depressed much? I certainly would be too if Paul ended his letter there. But thankfully, he doesn't. And this is where it gets a bit lighter, you'll be glad to hear. There is hope with God. And this is in verses 4 to 7. Just going to have a quick drink. Mm. So, in verse 4, everything changes. But because of his great love for us, God. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved, but God. We were condemned, but God. These two simple monosyllables offer to mankind in their complete hopelessness such an amazing hope. In contrast to the desperate human condition which we saw in verses 1 to 3, there is a divine compassion here in verses 4 to 7. And at the end of verse 4, there is this massive understatement. Have a look. God who is rich in mercy. Bill Gates has got nothing on this kind of richness. All the billionaires in the world have got nothing on this kind of richness. God has got the monopoly on mercy. And because of this mercy, we see that although we were once dead, Christ has now made us alive. A radical disease requires a truly radical remedy. We saw the depths of our sinful condition, that disease. So how is it that we are made alive? What's the remedy? Well, in asking the questions, what has God done? And why did God do it? I think we'll be able to clearly see the workings of this amazing mercy-driven transformation. So first then, what has God done? Quite simply in two words, saved us. God has saved us. Verse 5, it's by grace you have been saved. These verses are so exciting. It's a complete reversal of what we've seen in those first three verses. Look at verse 5 and 6 as we go through it together. We were quite clearly dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead to God, cut off from him. But now, beginning of verse 5, we are made alive with Christ. So we've seen death to life. Next, we saw that we were enslaved. Slaves to the world, to Satan, and to our own sinful desires, the flesh. But now, end of verse 5... By grace you have been saved. We've been taken out of slavery. We're no longer subject to the world and its contemporary must-haves. Satan is no longer our ruler. And our thoughts and our actions no longer have to be controlled by sinful desires. In every meaning of the word, we are free. By grace, Christ has saved us from our enslavement. So from enslaved to saved. Finally, the last incredible reversal. Recall how at the end of verse 3, we were condemned. We were rightly deserving of God's righteousness. uh, Righteous, but nonetheless terrible wrath. However, in verse 6, 
we see perhaps the greatest contrast yet. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Could there be any more of a complete turnaround? What an amazing contrast. Going from being the objects of God's wrath, and rightly so, to being enthroned with King Jesus, God's own son in heaven. Normally, it's not on this, uh, this week's copy of the evening service, but normally you'll find a, uh, a copy of the creed that we say most weeks here at St. Mary's. We say that almost every Sunday. And you might have wondered to yourself, why do we say this? What's the point? Well, let me just read uh, a few of the lines from that creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to this earth to be my saviour. He died for my sins on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended to the Father. Why bother saying it? Well, in those sentences that we say together, we see the workings of our salvation and redemption. It's by Christ's death on the cross that we are made alive. And we'll remember that later with communion. It's by this that we are saved from our enslavement, that we're taken out of our condemnation and instead enthroned with Christ. That's why we say it. It's hope. It's life. So the second question, sorry, it's condemned, condemned to enthroned. Second question, why then did God do it? Having established how God did it, we need to ask ourselves why. Paul uses uh, four words to express the origin of God's salvation plan. God's uh, mercy, love, grace, and kindness. We were dead and so helpless to save ourselves. Only mercy could reach those without hope. We were under God's wrath and only love could triumph over wrath. We deserve nothing from God except judgment. Only grace could rescue us from what we justly deserved, for grace is undeserved favour. We could never deserve God's mercy, his love, or his grace. But in his kindness to us, he sent his Son, in whom we have salvation. So in these four descriptions of God, of his wonderful character, we see why he saved us. And another reason, just briefly, as to why he saved us in verse 7. Just reading that again. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In raising Christ from the dead, he showed his great power. But in raising us from the dead... He showed his immeasurable riches of his grace. And as Christians, we are living proof of this incredible grace. And as such, we point the way for others to follow. So, we've seen the hopelessness of man. And thankfully, we've seen the hope that we have with God. And finally, what should our response be? Verses 8 to 10. I'll just read those out again. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. But we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us 
to do. So as we think about how we can respond to what we've seen from these verses here in Ephesians, it's vital to keep both the human condition but also the divine compassion in mind that we've seen so far in Ephesians. God's amazing grace and mercy, they're undermined when we do not fully recognise the sinfulness of our human condition. We have to appreciate our hopelessness before we really fully realise the hope that we have in God. So, how should we respond to this amazing grace? Got three W's for you to remember. First of all, let's wonder. We see in verse 8 that God's grace towards us, our salvation, is a gift. And it's so dangerous to, to stand here this evening and to tell you you need to try that much harder. You need to read your Bibles just that much more, maybe say a few more prayers, and then you'll get by. That's how you're right with God. That's how you'll get into heaven. No, absolutely not. In verse 9, we see that absolutely none of us can boast. I can't boast. You can't boast. How can anyone boast? We were dead. And now, if we're trusting in Christ as our saviour, we are made alive. How dare we look at ourselves, even in the smallest ways, to take credit for our salvation? It's like someone suffering from a heart attack, only to be resuscitated by a paramedic and then take the credit for being alive. It's farcical. All credit should go to the paramedic, because he has literally breathed life back into that man. And it's the same for us. Your actions in church, serving others, whatever it may be, have literally nothing to do with your salvation. So don't boast about what you've done, because Christ has done it all. In light of what we've seen in those first three verses, simply wonder at the fact that we don't have to be stuck in our complete and utter hopelessness. We deserve death, but instead we have a hope of life in Christ, because he has done it all for us. Second W is worship. In response to this incredible gift, worship God. Thank him, praise him, love him for it. But start by accepting this gift as well. Thinking back to Christmas, I'm sure we've all had those gifts, which we might think are a little bit unnecessary. Perhaps it's the umpteenth pair of socks with a slightly dodgy pattern on. Perhaps it's that tie we really just don't like. What were they thinking? Smiley faces all over it? I'm never going to wear that. But this isn't that kind of gift at all. No, this gift is completely necessary for life. And I wonder, have you accepted that gift? A third and final W for this evening is walk. We read again, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The ESV is perhaps a little bit more helpful in this when it says, those good works that God has prepared for us, that we should walk in them. This is a real contrast to the walking in our sin and being enslaved to it that we saw before. We now, uh, we're now able to walk the walk, doing good works as free men and women in Christ. We don't do these works to be able to boast or to be made right with God. 
We do it in response to everything that he has already done for us. Look at verse 10. We are God's handiwork. And if we're trusting in Christ, if our hope is in him, not ourselves, then we are a new creation. As a result of this, we are able to walk the walk. We are able to do good works that we were made to do. This is truly wonderful. But it gets even better. See right at the end of this passage, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We now have a purpose as we do things God had planned for us to do since before time. So have purpose in this life. Walk in response to your salvation. And not to gain it. Walk in response to it. So in conclusion then, having looked at this passage, having seen the utter hopelessness of the human condition, and having seen the amazing hope that we have in God for life, how will you respond? Are you feeling hopeless or hopeful? Are you trusting in yourself and your own works? Or are you trusting in God and everything that he has done for you? Because he has done it all. Trust in God and have life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we clearly see in these verses in Ephesians that we can have life. That it's not on us. It's not on us to try that much harder. It's not on us if we are living in our sin, to fail and to have to face your wrath. Thank you that you have freed us and that you have enabled us to live our lives with purpose. Help everyone here this evening to realise that for themselves and to respond to that wonderful truth. Through your Son. Amen.